I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Refractive Lens Exchange. Where Exheimer laser may not be the right choice, I think this is a useful procedure to be considered in those patients' group, albeit that it is an intraocular procedure and the potential risks need to be fully explained to patients. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Noel Horgan declares contracted research for Pfizer, Merck, Alcon, and Allergan. John Talamo has no apparent conflicts of interest. Mark Odrich, as medical director of Visix AMO, declares royalty, intellectual property rights, consulting, and equity ownership. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to A Scene From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Corneal refractive surgery is enormously popular and patient satisfaction has been high. But not everyone is a candidate for LASIK or PRK. Patients may have refractive errors beyond the approved range or may have refractive errors which, if treated, would leave their corneas dangerously thin. Clear lens extraction or refractive lens exchange provides an alternative as do phagic intraocular lenses. Of course, the concern one need have when considering an intraocular procedure for refractive benefit is not efficacy since there is essentially no limit to the power of the intraocular lens. It is safety. My first guest today, Noel Horgan, has just published results of a 10-year follow-up of patients who underwent refractive lens exchange. We'll conclude the podcast with segments from John Talamo and Mark Odrich. First to Noel and a description of the study. The study was a retrospective series of cases of clear lens extraction performed over 11 years that by Mr. Paddy Condon. And the cases were identified from his surgical logbook records. And then the patients were invited to attend for a follow-up um, iClinic review appointment for the purpose of the study. Over what time period were the procedures performed? So they were per- performed between January 1990 and December 2001. Can I have you describe your surgical technique? Okay. So most of these were done in the early days of phacoemulsification. They would have been like a standard phacoemulsification with a limbal, corneal limbal wound with CCC, capsorexis, high dissection, low-powered phacoemulsification, and insertion of an intraocular lens in most cases. Um, for that, most of these would have been single-piece lenses, so the, so the wound incision would have been increased to 5.5 to 6 millimeters in size and then closed with two or three interrupted um, nylon sutures. Um, in some cases, no intraocular lens was inserted because the, the target refraction would have been achieved without an intraocular lens in some of the high myops. So instead of putting in a plano lens, which might not have been available in those years, the patients were left afaking. How many patients were included in this study? Okay, so there are 62 cases. Uh, in 37 patients. Were any of the eyes left aphakic? 
16 of the eyes were left aphakic. Why was refractive lens exchange performed in preference to corneal refractive surgery? So many of these patients, they were very highly myopic. So their level of myopia was too high to be safely corrected by LASIK or LASIK or PRK. So in terms of residual corneal thickness and the risk of ectasia and the reliability of the refractive result following those procedures, these particular cases, the patients were felt to be better treated by refractive lens exchange rather than um, excimer treatments. The other thing was many of the patients were probably in an older age group, maybe in their late 30s or early 40s, probably approaching presbyopia so that the loss of accommodation was less of a consideration or less of a worry in these patients. That would have been another consideration. Some of them would have had peripheral opacity of the crystalline lens, so that would have been seen as a contraindication to performing excimer laser surgery, the primary procedure, seeing as those lens opacities might have progressed in a reasonably short length of time in, those, in that patient group. In the paper, you mentioned that some of the patients had refractive lens exchange and some of them had clear lens extraction. Can I have you describe the difference between these procedures? To be honest, there really, I don't think there is much of a difference, because, but it's just that newer, more recent literature has been using the term refractive lens exchange rather than clear lens extraction. But most of these patients, the lens, you know, even though it might have had some low-grade peripheral lens opacities, they were, you know, for all intents and purposes, clear lenses. Clear lens extraction, I suppose, might conjure up the idea of removing the crystalline lens and rendering the patient aphakic, whereas in most of these patients, their lens was put in to um, give the desired post-op refraction. So you're exchanging their crystalline lens for an artificial intraocular lens. So I suppose and even in modern um, surgery, high probes could potentially be considered for such procedures in addition to myopes. Was the visual potential limited in any of these eyes preoperatively? Preoperatively, six of the eyes were amblyopic in any case. And myopic macular changes were present in seven of the eyes preoperatively. In no case did myopic macular changes and amblyopia coexist in the same eye. What was the length of follow-up with these patients? In the follow-up interval from the time of surgery to the time of the review ranged from nine months to ten years and eight months, and the mean follow-up was 63.7 months with a standard deviation of 35.7. And the patient's average age at follow-up was 50.3 years. During the 10-year follow-up period, how many patients needed YAG capsulotomy? 38 of the 62 eyes, or 61%, had YAG posterior capsulotomy in the intervening follow-up period. And that time ranged from 6 months to 78 months following their initial refractive lens exchange. Compared to cataract surgery as we do it now, that seems like a pretty high rate of YAG capsulotomy. Can you tell me why you think the YAG capsulotomy rate was that high? A lot of these were performed in the 80s before square-edged intraocular lens technology. Um, the patient, so that might account for some of the higher, some of the increase in the YAG capsulotomy rate. The other thing is a lot of these patients were in a relatively younger age group than those patients who are the average age of having cataract surgery. So again, we all know younger patients are more inclined to develop posterior capsular thickening. So I think those two issues are probably the predominant reasons why the YAG laser rate in this patient group is higher than would be considered average for an average cataract population. 
During the 10-year follow-up, did any of the patients have posterior vitreous detachments? So posterior vitreous detachment was looked for in all the patients at follow-up. The posterior vitreous was detached in 54, 87% of eyes and was attached in seven eyes or 11.3%. And one eye had undergone a vitrectomy for a retinal detachment. You mentioned one patient who had a retinal detachment. How many patients had retinal detachments during this 10-year follow-up period? Two cases of rheumatogenous retinal detachment occurred in this patient group over the follow-up period. One of those occurred at two months after an uncomplicated procedure, and the other case occurred five months after an uneventful refractive lens exchange. Did either of these cases of retinal detachment occur in a patient who required YAG capsulotomy? No, neither of those patients had had YAG laser. Did the detachments occur in patients who were left aphagic or patients who were pseudophagic after surgery? So both of these cases of retinal detachment occurred in patients who had intraocular lenses implanted at the time of surgery in the capsular bag. Yes, yeah, so it was interesting that one of these cases had undergone prophylactic retinal laser to areas of lattice degeneration before their refractive lens surgery. The numbers of most of the literature regarding these this type of issue, most of the numbers are too small to determine whether or not um, prophylactic laser is of, is of benefit in reducing the risk of potential retinal detachment following these type of procedures. Certainly retinal detachment is a serious complication and a consideration in this sort of surgery on, on one hand. On the, on the other hand, if we follow 63 highly myopic eyes for 10 years, then some of them are naturally going to, to detach even without surgery. Sure, that's correct. So estimates of retinal detachment risk in the unoperated myopic or highly myopic patient vary from 0.4 to 0. roughly 0.7% per year. If we extrapolate that to this patient group of 37 patients over the mean follow-up of 64 months, that would ex translate into an expected occurrence of between roughly 0.8 and 1.3 cases of retinal detachment in this interval. So in this study, we observed two cases. So there may, that suggests that maybe perhaps a slight excess risk or increase in risk, but doesn't suggest a dramatic risk. And obviously, we'd probably need longer follow-up studies and bigger patient numbers to really be definitive about any potential excess risk. And it's interesting that I suppose from the literature, if you look at other studies, um, longer follow-up naturally does tend to reveal more a higher incidence of retinal detachments, although in this series, both retinal detachments occurred in a relatively short period following the surgery, two months and five months. And in the intervening um, period, no extra retinal detachments occurred. If we compare them with some of the previously published studies, such as those by the Collin group in France, we can see that in their group of 52 cases, followed up for 12 months, no retinal detachments occurred. At 48 months, the retinal detachment rate in the group was 1.9%. And at 84 months or four years, the retinal detachment rate was 8.1%. Other studies by groups such as Barraquet have estimated the incidence of retinal detachment at 7.3%. So overall, you can see that the estimates vary depending on the length of follow-up from 0% to up to 8%. Are there patients for whom this procedure is particularly well-suited? No, I think it's particularly well-suited for older patients who are already presbyopic or approaching presbyopia, whose high degree of myopia may be better served by this treatment rather than 
by Exheimer laser in view of the fact that excess thinning of the cornea may predispose those patients to post-operative ectasia following Exheimer laser treatments. So I think those would probably be the two or prime indications for this particular procedure over Exheimer procedures in the highly myopic patient group. Has this study changed the way that you practice? So I think the, the study is useful in giving us just a snapshot of long-term follow-up of these type of patients and I think also reassuring us that there does not seem to be an unduly excess risk of retinal detachment following this procedure. Most cataract surgeons are very familiar with this technology of phacomodification and which is being refined all the time. The accuracy of the procedure is improving all the time with newer axial length measurements, newer IOL biometric formulae, better IOL technology, smaller wound incisions, more stable anterior chambers during phacomodification surgery, and lower powered phacomodification. So I think overall this procedure is reaching stages of increased refinement and increased predictability, especially in those patients where, for one reason or another, Exheimer laser may not be the right choice. I think this is a useful procedure to be considered in those patients' group, albeit that it is an intraocular procedure and the potential risks and potential excess risks need to be fully explained to patients. I think it's also useful in dispelling the excess fear that patients may have of performing the capsulotomies in myopic patients and also in the importance of preoperatively and before YAG laser of looking or examining the retina for any potential areas um, that might need prophylactic retinal laser and also for checking for the existence of a posterior vitreous detachment because obviously a total posterior vitreous detachment is going to confer some uh, protective benefit against new vitreous traction on weak areas in the retina and therefore complete posterior vitreous detachment would be thought to confer some protection against a new onset retinal detachment, even in this high-risk group. Can you compare this procedure with implantation of phacic IOLs? The phacic lenses are becoming increasingly more common, but at the time of this study, really they weren't a consideration. So I myself don't have a lot of experience in phacic intraocular lens implantation or intraocular contact lenses. But they, again, are a useful consideration. But I think we, at the same time, have concerns with regard to corneal endothelial health, with regard to problems with the intraocular lens, crystalline lens interface, and the potential early development of cataract in those patients. So even though that is a useful consideration, I think this is just one of the many procedures that may be useful in refractive practice. And I think it's really just to underline the fact that this is a useful and predictable procedure with a long safety record. And I think the safety record is important in this patient group. And although other procedures are well established and are becoming more established, I think it's important not to forget the option of refractive lens exchange so that in a carefully selected patient, this is a very valuable and worthwhile procedure. I assume that when you're doing this procedure now that you're using foldable intraocular lenses. That's right. So we're using smaller wound incisions now, foldable lenses, and even the newer ultra-small lenses that are going to go in through um, incisions of less than 2 millimeters. So really, as I said, 
all the time this procedure is being refined. So lenses are becoming smaller, the wounds are becoming smaller, and the AC stability during surgery is better all the time. Noel, thank you very much. Not at all. Thanks again. Noel Horgan is a specialist registrar in ophthalmology at the Matter Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. His paper, Refractive Lens Exchange in High Myopia, Long-Term Follow-Up, appears in the June 2005 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. After speaking with Dr. Horgan, I wondered what refractive surgeons in the United States were advising their patients who fall outside the safe range for eczema refractive surgery. I asked John Talamo and Mark Odrich two questions. What they would advise a patient whose refraction and pachymetry are such that keratorefractive surgery is not a safe option. I asked them whether the presence of a visually significant cataract or presbyopia would influence their decision-making. First to John Talamo. John is Assistant Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the Harvard Medical School. I asked him about the patient who was out of range for keratorefractive surgery. Well, I, I assume what you're getting at here is what are my feelings about uh, alternatives to laser vision correction for ions. At this point in time, uh, I'm taking a fairly conservative approach to treating these patients. It's very, very rare that I would tackle anything over about a minus 12 uh, with the laser vision correction. So really the counseling of a patient like this would center around their success with various modes of vision correction, namely contact lenses. And if I have a very successful contact lens wearer in this group, I don't encourage them uh, too strongly to move in the direction of uh, refractive surgery. And uh, it's really only contact lens intolerant patients that I start to contemplate either a fake IOL or refractive lens exchange. And when thinking about those two modalities, I deal with myopes and hyperopes very differently. I deal with younger and older patients very differently. So if you have a, a patient who's an extreme myope, I think you mentioned minus 14, let's, for the sake of discussion, assume that this is a fairly active individual and they've now become contact lens intolerant. If they're a young patient, really the uh, only thing that I think is reasonable uh, to offer them is a fake IOL. Obviously, in our market in the United States, the only option at this point is the artist and lens, which I've had a little bit of experience with. And it's a relatively safe procedure for somebody like this, so they have to keep in mind in extremely myopic eyes with long axial length, they're prone to all sorts of pathology over the course of a lifetime and probably entering the eye and manipulating things is if anything, going to accelerate any other tendency they may have, such as cataract formation or the development of, of glaucoma. Uh, the two big issues, it seems to me, with phacic eye wells and extreme myopes right now, uh, particularly when you're dealing with the artisan lens, is long-term endothelial health and the issue of cataractogenesis, with maybe a third issue being uh, the question, does uh, this type of intervention, placing a phacic eye well, doing any kind of manipulation may I raise the incidence of retinal detachment in already prone population. If I have a younger patient, you know, I talk to them about the data and experience that's out there and really flag for them the fact that uh, endothelial health, corneal endothelial health in the long term is a bit of a question mark. The U.S. Uh, FDA trial of the artisan lens showed 
stabilization of uh, cell count by three to four years out, but would really, I think, it, you know, what looks like an acceptable loss. However, the European collaborative study showed something different, which was sort of a crescendo loss that hadn't stopped at four to five years yet, I believe, in the nine to ten percent range. So the question is, if you take somebody who's 30 years old, who's minus 14, and you put an artisan lens in them, and they have a cell count of 2,200 to start out with, what's that going to mean for that patient in 30 years? Are we going to have a mini-epidemic of bullet uh, keratopathy on, on our hands because we've induced progressive cell loss? And whether the presence of a visually insignificant cataract would influence his therapeutic plan? Yeah, it would change my both my counseling and my management a bit. I think I would feel less skittish about putting a fake guy well in a 55-year-old patient. This person's probably going to have it in for a lesser period of time and heading towards cataract surgery anyway. I think in an extreme myo, I would still opt if I thought I could get good vision to put in a phacic lens and remove it later when the patient needs cataract surgery because it's very clear that the risk of uh, retinal detachment goes up quite a bit when you remove the crystalline lens, and it's not so clear that that's the case if you put a phacic IOL in. Now, if this 55-year-old were a plus 6 instead of a minus 14, I'd approach it very differently. As you know, there are real issues of, of sizing and anatomy for hyperopes who are... Um, considering phacic IOL implantation, and in these patients, the risk of lens extraction is also lower. So one of the few situations where I would consider, you know, relatively clear lens exchanges in a high hyperope who's aggressively seeking uh, refractive surgery was, of course, the appropriate uh, informed consent uh, uh, talking about the risk uh, of intraocular surgery vis-a-vis something like laser vision correction, which I really don't think is a viable option for somebody who's a plus six or above. If you have someone who's a plus four or below, they're a much better candidate for laser vision correction. But again, if a cataract is beginning to develop, it's an important conversation to have with the patient that they're going to probably be buying themselves uh, two procedures rather than one if they were to go ahead and either have lens exchange or wait until the cataract progressed a little bit more. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you. Mark Odrich is Assistant Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology at the Columbia University School of Medicine and Medical Director of Vizex AMO. I asked Mark what he advises patients who are beyond the keratorefractive range. Currently, what I'm telling them is that there are options that are available for them, that they are currently, particularly when we talk about things like phacic lenses, that they're just coming into uh, the United States and are just being approved and that they, they should stay tuned for more options, but I'm not currently offering them to them. I do have a current waiting list for the phacic lens that I think will uh, afford them the best vision. The problem I have with a clear lens removal uh, at this point is that I think accommodation is something I'm not willing to let these patients not have. And if a cataract is present, albeit a visually insignificant one? I don't make a big distinction there. If if there is any sense of lenticular change or they're in their 40s and they have compromised accommodation, I think that that patient is is, fine for a clear lens exchange. I I would not hesitate to make that an offer. Ask questions of Dr. Horgan, Dr. Odrich, Dr. Talamo, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. 
These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.